Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello. Abe Kimura. Hey, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week, we're talking to Chris O'Sullivan. Chris, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Chris O'Sullivan. You just said that. But I'm the CTO and co-founder for Lexu.co.uk. Lexu is a legal tech website based out of London, and we help companies find lawyers for their legal problems. Nice. Resolve Digital helps build, optimize, and maintain e-commerce, SaaS, and other products built on Ruby on Rails. They can help build new applications from scratch, rescue projects in bad shape, provide ongoing development and maintenance for existing projects, augment your existing team with experienced Rails developers. They also specialize in Solidus and Spree Commerce solutions. Go check them out at resolve.digital. I'm just glad that we got somebody on whose name I can finally say. I always feel terrible like munch some Polish name or something. I'm just like, I'm so sorry. So many Americans pronounce my name wrong, though. I don't know how... Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, they think that the O is a middle initial or something, so I get addressed as Mr. Sullivan. I'm like, no, it's O. Sullivan. It respects my Irish heritage. There you go. So, yeah, so you recommended... You did a lightning talk at RubyConf, and that's initially why we invited you on, but you brought up this idea of talking about the people who have kind of come before us in Ruby and some of the really, really interesting people I guess before we do that, yeah, you, you mentioned your CTO and co-founder. I'm, I'm curious, how far back does your Ruby memory go? Well, I, in January 2007, I bought the Agile Web Development with Rails book. Uh, so I, I, my first programming job was 2001. And back then, I was a Delphi developer. And I don't know if anybody knows Delphi, um, but it's like, <laughs> actually, I got to say, it was awesome. It was called a RAD, which stands for Rapid Application Development. And it was a way of making Windows apps really quickly. And it was invented by a guy called Anders Hezerberg, another Danish person, who went on to actually create C-sharp and TypeScript. Yep. Anyway, so that's how far back I go, 2001. And then somewhere, I don't know, maybe 2006, I got really bored of programming. I was doing .NET development. And I think this is quite common for people of our age and stage, that around that time, I discovered the DHH. Do you remember the DHH blog post where he he created a blog engine? He kept on saying, whoops. Does anybody remember that? Look at all the things I'm not doing. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And, And this was when Rails was before, it was even before migrations. So he was just like adding fields to the table. And I saw that, I saw that podcast, that, that video, and I was just absolutely blown away by Rails. And I, I couldn't wait to try it out and to, to stop working on ASP.NET and, and do it. And I remember at the time, I bought the book, uh, Agile Web Development, and I found it really hard to follow, actually. And what really put me into Rails was the dummy's guide to Rails. And it was real basic, but it was Windows-focused. And back then, I was all Windows all the way. So yeah, 2007 is when I, and then I, I quit my job as a .NET developer, went to work as a Ruby on Rails developer in London. And at the time, no, there was only like three or four companies, that's probably a lie, but there weren't that many companies in London actually doing Ruby on Rails. So the Ruby community was really small and fun and exciting. And we're all working on this fun thing that nobody else knows about. And it was, I don't know, it was, it was exciting. And it reinvigorated my love of programming. Nice. 
John, Dave, what, what are your kind of uh, Ruby entry stories and how long ago was that? So I also entered the scene about 2007, but I actually, it was my first job. I was trying to pay for college and I needed you know, a job and I kept trying to get development jobs and no one wanted to hire a college senior, it seemed. And then somebody just called me up after the school year had started and was like, hey, I need someone. I was like, hey, just, you know, no one's been hiring me because I'm actually still in school. Is that a problem? And he was like, oh, no, fine. So I answered phones and I started doing Rails and Flex. I just thought that Rails, like the Ruby community was nicer. And so basically five years later, when I was going for my next job, I was like, I I was offered a pretty sweet, well, I don't know. It seemed sweet. I never did it. So I have no idea. It seemed like a sweet gig out in Silicon Valley, and I was, but it was doing flex, and I was like, I don't know if I want to keep doing this thing. And I took this other gig instead, doing Rails, and I've only been—I shouldn't say only been doing, but I've been doing Rails-related stuff ever since. So, mine's—I'm clearly slightly younger in that, but I was first introduced to Rails in around 2005-2006 era, but. I didn't really dive into it. I was still doing my own stuff. It wasn't until around 2009 when I met my wife and she said, all right, David, you're not going to be spending all your time playing World of Warcraft. You need to stop that. I'm like, okay, well, honestly, I can't spend all my time with you. So I need something else to do to stimulate my mind. And I'm like, what if I pick up programming again? So... It really came down to a choice between Python and Ruby and basically just flipped a coin on which way to go and ultimately went jumped on the Ruby train. Now at the time Django and stuff was out and you had Ruby on Rails so there wasn't really a reason to go with one or another they both seemed pre- pretty equivalent at the time. Yeah, that makes sense. So I Right before I graduated from college in two, 2006, I wound up getting a job at a company. They've been acquired like four times. so Or they got acquired and then their parent company got acquired. Anyway, we were brand new. We were answering... I was working support over there, actually. I'd played with LampStack and a bunch of other stuff before that. and Done some programming for college. And then... Um, but the company was using Rails for their web interface. It was online backup. So it was, I need these files back, right? And it would email you when it had a zip file for you. Anyway, our, we got featured in Wall Street Journal and they wouldn't buy us uh, bug tracking, incident tracking software like Zendesk or something. So we built our own. And that's how I got into Rails. I thought programming was kind of a, it was kind of a joke to me up until that point. And then I was like, oh, wow, we can solve real problems with this stuff. Yeah, so I got into Rails, wound up building it out to include a bunch of other stuff, started going to the Ruby users groups, half of which were at the company's <laughs> office, right? We, we hosted those. So that's how I got into it. It was late 20, 2006. I think it was Rails version 1.1 or 1.2 when I kind of got into it. Yep, the uh, app that I joined in on was a 1.0 app. And then... Somewhere in those first months, you know, I don't know. It was crazy for me because it was my first job, right? So we were clearly upgrading 
if I look back now, I'm like, oh yeah, we were upgrading, but I, I don't remember half the stuff that went on, if I'm honest. Yeah. So we're we're kind of talking about some of the people that were involved at the time, or people that we remember. And it's interesting because you you mentioned before the show you were at RubyConf, and somebody mentioned that they had never heard of Jim Wyrick, which makes me really really sad because Jim was pretty important at least to my journey. But yeah, you know, are there people that you remember from, you know, the 2006 2007 era that you think are worth talking about? Oh, I mean, I, this, that's the thing I think is wonderful about Ruby back then. It was just full of misfits. And, <laughs> uh, I don't know, like people who weren't doing it to... It's now, it's, it's a business and I know that because I'm a founder, I, I use Ruby to make money. But it's almost like back then, people weren't doing it to make money. Yeah. Maybe DHH was, but, but it was, people were doing it because they loved programming. And it was almost... a this is weird to say now because this is so innate with us, but it was almost funny to think about that programming itself can be a fun thing that you don't have to be optimized and really quick. And, and Ruby was slow, but that was cool because look at the fun stuff that we can do. So back then, the second book I, I bought, no, third, if you count the dummies guide, was actually Jerry, Jeremy McAnally's humble little Ruby book which is because there weren't that many Ruby books around then. There was like the pickaxe, which I found just like really hard to read. But Jeremy McAnally's humble little Ruby book was just like it was, I think it was like a, basically a PDF. And it was really nice. It was kind of like written in a first person, like, dear reader, welcome to Ruby. And it, it just helped me to get excited about the community, that it's full of these wacky folk. Pretty soon after I got my first Ruby job, I went to a conference. Uh, it's called the Scottish, Scottish Ruby Conference, or, or maybe it was called Scotland on Rails back then. And that's where I first saw Jim Wyrick. And Jim Wyrick, obviously, is the creator of Rake. Well, I mm-hmm. thought it was obvious. And so I was like, wow, there's the man who created Rake wandering amongst us like a normal human being. And he gave such a fantastic uh, presentation at that conference. This conference is very small. But the, the lineup of the people there were absolutely incredible. And that's because the people who were Ruby developers at that time, they were all in it for the love of it. So Jim Wyrick, I got to talk to him and just his enthusiasm. If you, if you know what he looks like, he's a big man with a big white beard. And he just has this way of looping everybody in. He's so welcoming. And it, made me, it helped me to realize that like programming communities aren't just full of horrible little nerds, that there are actually like some interesting folk out there. So when I started programming in London, there was, the community there was pretty like interesting people as well. There was actually a guy who created this website called workingwithrails.com. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's, it's gone now. But back then, it was just basically a place where you could go and find jobs for Rails. Or if you're a company that, has, that is based on Rails, then you can list it there. But something that was quite cool was that it listed out the contributions on the website. So you can see who actually contributed to Rails. Now, this was before Git, GitHub, probably before Git, actually. It was, everything was on Subversion. So it wasn't like it was immediately obvious who the actual people who wrote code that was in Rails. And working with Rails had a competition where in any given month, the person that contributed the most patches to Rails 
got a free ticket to that year's Rails Comp. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. interesting. I might, might actually get involved with this. So I, I started c- contributing patches, and then they started getting accepted. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for this ticket, this ticket to RailsConf. It wasn't even flights. It wasn't anything like that. I still had to make my way there. But I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get this ticket. And if you look at contributors.rubyonrails.com, I'm number 314. But pretty much all of my contributions are from March 2008, when I just like went absolutely nuts contributing to Rails. So some of the things I contributed was like aliases for first and last. So if, if you go on Active Record and you go like user.first, that was something that I contributed because it was, it was a very basic patch for me to make. I did has one through, if you've ever done a has one association with through. Anyway, so I... Nice. I, I have done was, that actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, uh, I'm sure my code has probably been stripped out since then. But at, at the time, it was like, I was just desperate to add anything to Rails so that I could get this ticket. So I, 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 it was me and another guy who were like neck and neck for number one. This guy, I remember his name, Emilio Tagua. He's an Argentinian developer. Love, super lovely guy, amazing guy. But to me during that month, he was my nemesis. And every time I'd get a patch accepted, he, he seemed to get two more. And finally, I managed to make it over the line. And I, I feel dirty thinking about it, but I, my last contribution was like, like a, just a documentation change. And but I managed to actually get a ticket to RailsConf. So that was my first RailsConf in 2008. And that was kind of crazy as well. Anyway, I, I'm going to keep talking unless you stop me. Yeah. Well, uh, now I'm interested to see how it works, how, how it went, you know, that first RailsConf. Well, well RailsConf was, I think it, 2008 was probably, maybe Rails has, it hadn't like become the massive thing it is now, but it was pretty big back then. But I remember at that RailsConf, one of the talks I went to was about this funky little upstart called Heroku. And Heroku at that time, their their product was like an online editor. It wasn't like what it is now. It was like like a hosted service. It was an online editor where you could type in code into your browser. They just so happened that they had this, this um, interface behind it where you could type the code in and it would also put up a server. And then they eventually realized that actually the thing about Heroku was the server itself, not the online editor. So at that first conference, I, I, I was quite disappointed because it was, mass, it was such a massive conference and it was hard to kind of like make it like meet people, I suppose, or to, I don't know, so it was... Like at Scottish Ruby Conference, you could just walk up to talk speakers and just like, just totally, I could walk up to Jim Wyrick and just bleh. Whereas this, I remember when DHH kind of like walked through the room and it was almost like a rock star was coming through. And I, I kind of walked behind him for a bit just to, so I could absorb some of his power. And he, I remember him smelling really nice. But it was a, it was a funny conference because it was, it was, so, it was so busy. Yeah, anyway, so that's why I, I thought it was really interesting this year when I went to my first RubyConf. To con- contrast that to my first RailsConf, it was so different. Like this year's RubyConf was small. It was, the people were so lovely and so uh, big, diverse crowd as well, which was wonderful to see so many different, um, different types of people at this conference. Not just the advanced people, but beginner and from all walks of life. And so going to this conference, I was, I was thinking about my first Rails conference, like how different it was. And it would kind of reinvigorate my love of Ruby. Interesting. 
Uh, I kind of want to bring up a few other folks from back in that uh, time period. One of them is Why the Lucky Stiff, who was... He was so interesting in so many different ways. And I'm kind of sad that he's kind of disappeared. He wrote uh, Wise Poignant Guide to Ruby, which was with the, the cartoon foxes. Y'all remember these? Mm-hmm. I, lo- I loved it. And the whole Chunky Bacon thing. Yeah, and, Chunky Bacon. And it was like a soundtrack. Do you remember, did you ever play the soundtrack to uh-huh. Wise Poignant Guide? You could no. actually... He, he wrote... He had a band called The Thirsty Cups. And he wrote music. That, w- that you could play along <laughs> as, you, as you were reading this book. And it wasn't, like a, it wasn't like a very good way of learning Ruby, I've got to say. Uh, but it, was, <laughs> it was entertaining. It was, it was entertaining. And it was, it was the first time I'd kind of seen coding as being something more than a means to an end. It was, he loved the actual programming language. And if you look at why like, he stuff's code, it's it's kind of it's a little bit out there, and sometimes he'll do things just for the sake of how it looks. Like I remember yeah. one method where it was designed to look like a pyramid. So the first line was like the second line was longer than the first line, the third line was longer than the second line, and so forth and so on. He just he just made it look interesting rather than just the code itself. But what, why he was so cool as well is because he people actually used his his software. He wasn't just running code for the sake of it, or maybe he was, but he had like one of the main XML libraries, I think it was HPricot, like, which I think was it XML. Anyway, it's, it's, it was taken over by Nakagiri as kind of like the de facto, but for ages, HPricot was the main library you would use for, I think it was XML parsing, or HTML parsing at least. And it was just really good, solid code, but it was created from this crazy or right brain nuts guy. Yeah, I, I want more wide lucky stuffs out there. I want more people who just look at code as being something a bit strange. Yeah, he, he kind of brought artwork and just a bunch of, I, I don't even know, like he wrote shoes and stuff like that. I mean, just, just out there stuff that nobody else was really thinking about as far as pulling together. It wasn't just the code, but it was like things that people weren't even thinking about doing with Ruby. And he'd go figure out how to do it because he just wanted to. Yeah, he, he really kind of brought the art to code, both in the projects that he chose to tackle, as well as... I, I don't even know how to explain it. He was just this cultural phenomenon. Well, he created something called Hackity Hack, I think it was called. Yep. Which was... And the purpose of it was for people to learn programming. Yep. I, and I think it was... Maybe it was focused on kids. And it was... It was great. It was just done from a, a completely altruistic frame of mind. It was just like, he wants more people to learn Ruby or to learn programming. How is it? What's the best way I can do that? I'm going to make this fun service called Hackity Hack. Yeah. yeah. What a nutter. <laughs> there are definitely people today that do not, not exactly the same thing in any way, but the people that are exploring, right, sort of that artistic perspective in just a completely different way. Ruby in general, but like Rails as well, has its own different culture. But there's there's definitely a cultural thing going on, right? And people play with that. It, it's definitely evolved. It's different, right? Like, and you have people that try to make that happen in other places, right? So I can never remember his name, but the the one the crystal guy, right, that runs around with the crystal stickers like all the time, right? It, it's not even a Rails thing, but like he wants that Rails Ruby cultural feel to happen over with Crystal. And he shows up at RailsConf for that reason, trying to get people to 
hey, you know, let me talk to you about Crystal, right? And like there, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at is like the whole like artsy cultural thing, like it's still very much a part of the community, even if it's different, right? It's so much that people want it somewhere else. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest inspirations for me and Ruby was Ryan Bates. Back in the early days, I I remember having watched every single one of his videos and he in lar- largely part was my inspiration for creating Drift and Ruby and the you know, he really set the quality level that I strive to hit. And I definitely don't think I would be here today if it weren't for his contributions. And I even remember when his service went pro and he started offering pro episodes for $9 a month. I remember having a discussion with my wife. I'm like, hey, I know this is a lot of money for us right now, but I really think that if I subscribe to this service, it's going to really help me out and make me better. And in many ways, it did. I mean, it was the best money I had ever spent on a software as a service, essentially. Yeah, Ryan Ryan was definitely interesting. And he he would show up to the conferences and speak as well. And he he had a little bit of that flavor of exploration, I found. So if there was something out there that people were struggling with, he'd figure out how to put it together and then he'd put together a video on it. And so it wasn't always just, hey, here's how you use this feature of Rails. But in, a, in a several cases, it was, here's how you b- would build a feature like this into your app. And it, it was very, very helpful. And I think it influenced a lot of people to get into Rails. Agreed. I mean, Brian Bates was super helpful on so many things. I mean, shoot. I always hated Can Can. So like I always like there's like a part of me. <laughs> you. There's there's like a part of me that like was always like slightly like, uh, you know, he wrote Can Can or whatever. But yeah. But five uh, minutes in. I love Can Can. Ten minutes in. This is gonna turn into my junk drawer. Yeah. Okay. So my whole point is like even even despite that, like, I mean, I can't yeah, I mean, the point is, I can't even tell you how many times like, I was like, all right, I think I understand how this thing works, but I don't know how to make this thing work in real life, right? And, and Ryan Bates had so many episodes where he was like, all right, here's, here's a non-tutorial, like sort of somewhat real life example of how to implement this feature, right? Because that's always the big leap is you go to this gym's page and they're like, here's how to use it in their app. And it's mm-hmm. like a perfectly created example that no one has in real life. And you're just like slightly bitter because you're like, I don't know how to make this work with my app. <laughs> I share some of the same sentiments, especially around CanCan. But I wonder if my distaste for CanCan back at the time, because essentially my abilities.rb file or just ability.rb file would have grown to be like 500 lines. And it was just so unmaintainable. But I think that was more of my state of mind as a developer back then. I think today, if I were to implement KenKen in a more modern Rails app, I would have a much different approach, a much more maintainable approach to it. So it's probably less to do with the gym and more about us as developers writing crappy code. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you're not, you're not wrong. I maybe I'm not being fair to CanCan, right? And we didn't have Pundit at the time, or at least I didn't know about it. It was and basically we CanCan all... and Sorcery. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, is that I guess Pundit and you know, some of these other libraries push us a little bit more modularized. So they make us think in better terms about the software we're building, for lack of a better way of putting it. 
you know, so you could, it, you, you are more prone to write the junk drawer, but yeah. And it's interesting too, to look at some of these folks that we've talked about and see where they're at now. You know, Jim passed away in 2014. Why the Lucky Stiff disappeared. Man, I think around the same time. Somebody outed his real life identity and yeah, he just disappeared. Ryan got burned out, you know, quit producing Rails casts. It's, it's really interesting to see where a lot of these folks have ended up. One person that people were talking about when I, I really got into Ruby and started going to conferences and things was Zed Shaw. Do you all yeah. remember Zed? Yeah. M- Mongrel. He created Mongrel, right? He created Mongrel, which was a web server way back in the day. And then he wrote a post that... And this is why people were talking about He wrote a post that was called Rails is a Ghetto. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and ticked everybody off. But he was a strong personality and he really had some opinions. A lot of them I agree with and, and a lot of them I kind of don't. So I'm probably 50-50 on his opinions. But I always felt like he was trying to make the community better. So I didn't blame him for speaking up. But Yeah, he was, he was a really interesting character. But you remind me of also Giles Balkett. Do you know Giles? He wrote a book. Oh, yeah, Giles. Yeah. Giles and I have a checkered history. I'll just put it All there. right. Well, he was at that Scottish Ruby conference that I talked about, that first one where I met Jim Wyrick. And he did a talk on data as code, code as data. And that uh, was one of the most interesting, fascinating um, talks I've ever seen. But he, he's kind of like from the Zed Shaw school of like planting seeds of controversy and then seeing what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So just to give a little background, you know, since I mentioned it, Giles was really good friends with David Brady, who was on Ruby Rogues. And anyway, at one point, there was something that he posted on Twitter that was a political slant. And I pointed out that, you know, there's a lot of political slant, no matter which way you look. It involved Fox News. I don't remember exactly what the detail was, but I'm like, look, all of the news organizations have a slant. And he blocked me because of the tweet. And then he complained to David on several occasions that, he could never get a hold of me to see if he could come on Ruby Rogues. And the reason was, was that I was blocked on Twitter. And so I never saw his posts. And then it turned out that he had some other beef with something I said or did. And I don't remember what that was. But yeah, I always thought it was funny that I got blocked on Twitter. And then because he blocked me on Twitter, he couldn't get a hold of me to get on the show. For a while on Twitter, I had uh, this penned. Forget what it says exactly, but uh, Ruby will either die a hero or live long enough to become Java. (laughs) I love it. It was a uh, Batman reference, but yeah. I I think that's true in a lot of ways. You know, if you give something that was intentioned for good long enough to become corrupted, it it might become corrupted. I say might. Well, and this is kind of basing off of, I guess I should explain, the recent Rails 6 release with Action Text. I think a lot of the community had gone the front-end route with React, Angular, Vue, and all that stuff. But then here is Ruby on Rails framework kind of pushing back and then releasing this into core. And I think a lot of people say, why would you do that? We're not going to use it. We're using React or whatever else. So, you know, just a little bit of that. But I, for one, love action text. I think it's awesome. 
Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. I feel like that happens with every single version of Rails that comes out. And I don't know, I'm cool like that. Like, because it's open source software. And I remember <laughs> there was controversies back in Rails 2 when something was released. Probably REST was kind of like p- yep. part of it or something. And uh-huh. every time that a new Rails comes out, there's always something in there that people are like, Aah. in terms of Rails though, in terms of Ruby becoming Java, it's interesting because, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm a co-founder of a company. And when you, when you co-found a company, I've, for me at least, I stopped kind of treating programming as a bit of a hobby and it became a bit of a career. So I didn't program in my spare time as much or at all. And things were all viewed through the lens of my business. And so what happened was I found myself just doing Ruby on Rails and only Ruby on Rails all day, every day. And so then when SPA and React, Angular, et cetera, started becoming the hot new thing, I was completely oblivious. I was completely oblivious. I was still like, Ruby, Rails, Sprockets, jQuery, let's do all that. Right. And, then, and then a few years ago, I realized I've got I've to learn something. Otherwise, I'm going I'm to be left behind. And I started getting into Vue.js. When I was looking at it, it was, it was very hard to integrate that sort of spa type framework into Rails because Rails is so opinionated. It's like use Sprockets or back then it was. Also, when I looked at Vue, if, you, if you're new to ES6 and you've come from like old school JavaScript with the word function everywhere, <laughs> then it's kind of like, it came as a bit of a shock. I, I felt like, oh my God, is, like JavaScript is completely different from what I remember it being. And I, I, when I was looking at Vue code, I was like, this doesn't even look like valid code to me. Like the destructuring thing with squiggly braces and like, destructuring from objects. I was just like, this, this is code that somehow works, but I have no idea how, how it does. That kind of leads nicely into my RubyConf lightning talk because I was working on Vue.js, I was learning ES6, and I was starting to incorporate Vue into my day-to-day and loving it, by the way. I absolutely love Vue.js. I think it's absolutely fantastic. But what I found was with these new ES6 patterns, I'd go back to Ruby and I was missing some of them. So one of the ones I was missing was in, if you, let's say you're creating a hash and you create a hash that you're going to be using to instantiate a user object. So you have a hash that has the key of a symbol name and maybe the variable name. So you've created a, a temporary variable name and a temporary variable email, and then you create a hash, I mean a hash that has name, name, email, email. And it was just like, I, I looked through, my code is riddled through this with this stuff. Whereas in ES6, there's this awesome shorthand, I suppose you could call it, where if yeah. the, in, in fact, it's called, <laughs> yeah, it's got a boring name, object literal property value shorthand. I think that's what it's called. It's something and, like that. But yes, I love it. Name, email, you just give yeah. it the, and, and then it figures out key name is Variable name, I love it. It's, it's, I feel like it's hard to explain with just words. I want to point at code. Yeah. But I, I, I found myself writing code like that in ES6 and I absolutely love it. And so I thought, I wonder if we could put this into Ruby. So 
I started playing around with, and that's one of the cool things about Ruby is just like making a pretend operator or making a method that would, would do this. And I, I, the more I tried to do it with just plain Ruby, I found it was just wasn't elegant. And I would it just, it didn't feel, I would use like, I think it's Ruby to Ruby gem or whatever the current version of Ruby to Ruby is. Anyway, and then I thought, I wonder if I could hack Ruby and create a C patch to, do, to add this in. And thinking like I'm the smartest man in the world, thinking that nobody else has thought about this before, I started trying to do this, only to find that years ago, somebody else had already, like five years ago, somebody else had already proposed this to, to Matt's, and he said no. And then like a couple of years ago, somebody else proposed it again, uh, and he once again said no. But those patches are still around. So coders have created these patches didn't put them into Ruby, but these patches are still around. So I, I was able to take one of these patches and put it into Ruby and introduce this object literal shorthand into Ruby. Anyway, and it was, it was such a really interesting experience to go through this and to see what it's like to look at Ruby, this, the C code that makes Ruby and to see how patches are made and, and the horrible things that the Ruby core team have to do so that we can use Ruby. Anyway, that was my lightning talk. It's online. Feel free to check it out. Uh, I've got a blog post about it. But I, I, anyway, what, what, by doing that, I realized that I really hope that Ruby carries on growing in the same way that JavaScript does because that JavaScript to ES6 was such a massive jump and it got me excited into JavaScript. Yeah. I want that feature. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that feature, but not at the cost of patching my interpreter. You know what I mean? Like, right. if it, I yeah. want it in the yeah. language, I oh, want right. it automatic. Because I could just see the deployment nightmares. You know, you're deploying to production Christmas Eve, and you're spinning up a new instance of your server, but you forgot to patch Ruby, and then you're trying to figure out like what this code was three years ago that you wrote. I mean, that's definitely a DevOps problem right there, right? <laughs> I, think, I think you're right, Chris, right? Like JavaScript has come a long ways since when I first started Ruby, especially from the standpoint that like, remember that grand old experiment that we all like hate called CoffeeScript or whatever, right? Like the fact was that that actually made it really easy for me to transition to EX, yeah. ES6 because all those things that we were doing in and CoffeeScript like inspired a lot of those things in ES6 or whatever. And so it actually I was like, oh sweet. Like the, the transition was easy for me because of that nightmarish time, right? Uh, I actually still have a client that I support that they still have CoffeeScript. That's not changing because it's like hundreds of files. But yeah, I mean JavaScript's come a long way. It's better. Ruby's come a long way. Rails has come a long way. I thought it was really interesting that we were talking about controversial figures because it reminded me that there was this one controversial... I mean, why I say one, there were tons, right? Like you brought Rust already. But remember remember Merb or whatever, right? Like oh, how, yeah. how much better is Rails now because of the Merb merger, right? Not yeah. only did we get Aaron Patterson out of that, right? But like, and now he's like making cats. our lives better. And Yehuda Cats. True, but he like, he ran away and went and did his own thing. And made Ember, yeah. Yeah. But my, but like Mer, like the fact that you can swap out Active Record for, you know, whatever those other things are that I don't use clearly, you know, the fact that you can swap those things out, like just because the fact that you can swap out your backend, you know, uh, have a 
you could swap out ActiveView. I don't know if there is a replacement for that, actually. You know, the fact that you can do all of those things is because of Merb, right? Like, because we merged that in. And I, I think it's awesome. It's actually one of the things that, like, I personally think is part of the magic of Rails. And it wasn't originally part of Rails, right? Like, the fact that you can take any piece, chuck it, throw it away in Rails, and plug something else in if you wanted to, that's part of its magic. I guess what I'm saying is, look how much more awesome it is because we had people that said, this, this sucks. I'm going to do my own thing. 100%. 100%. Was that also the same time that REC got brought in? Kind of um, I cannot I don't, tell you for I don't certain. think so. I think it was a different... Because uh, I remember when REC came in, I was like, whoa, what's this REC thing? And it's actually so simple once you realize it. But, and it was, suddenly there was a plethora of middleware. People don't really make much middleware these days. Or maybe they do and I just don't pay attention. But it was just like, wow, you can have a middleware for everything now. And once again, like you could, ex- exactly, you could change Rails the way you want to. I-, I feel like the next big jump for me was moving to Webpacker because that means that Sprockets isn't such a, such a fundamental part that we can start swapping in these front-end things, which I think are, are really important in this day and age. Um, I was going to say, you skipped the pipeline altogether because the pipeline itself was a big... It was a big yeah, jump but too. it's your pipeline. That's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was a big move, but it was oh, such a pain in the butt. I'm so glad we have Webpacker now. You I'm know, also crying at the same time. Go ahead. <laughs> I, think that, <laughs> I think that TurboLinks back when it was part of Rails Core, at the same time that CoffeeScript and stuff was introduced, it was ahead of its time, and I think that it created such pushback that people just hated it. It was the first thing that you did when you created a new Rails app. If you didn't do the skip turbo links, you disabled it because it would just destroy any kind of JavaScript library that you wanted to work with. But today, turbo links 5, I mean, it's amazing. I've not had to disable turbo links from a new Rails application in years. Oh, oh, I totally have. There's totally times when it happens or whatever, like especially when you get into these single page app kind of situations or whatever. Like we had this like deep React app and we just eventually had Turbolinks last, right? Well, there's uh, your first problem. You were using React. Uh, I, I mean, that was actually going to be my next thing, which is like I... I've gotten into view, so... <clears throat> I've used Stimulus recently. And I mean... We'll see. We'll see if RailsConf accepts my talk, but like, I'm definitely giving it locally or whatever. But I, I mean, I'll, I'll come out on the air and say that Stimulus, I just recently used it for a thing and I was so blown away by what I was able to do with it. Having used React for a long time, having played with Vue and Angular, like Stimulus is everything that I ever wanted out of a JavaScript framework that they have never given me. And it works with TurboLinks. Like it just straight up just works, and I'll never have to disable one or the other. I'm a big, big fan of Stimulus. And the one thing I do kind of wish that it had that we don't really natively get is the view component. Being able to isolate the view component and then just render it, render the component into our view. That's the one thing that I kind of wish it had. And the one thing that I do like about React View and the others is that your component is now truly isolated from the rest of the application. It's not depending on you of consuming it within the view. Yeah, I poo-pooed the front-end frameworks for a long time, which is ironic considering I've been running at least one front-end show for 
six, seven years. And I'm talking about the Angular show, not the JavaScript show. But yeah, I got into Vue over the last few months. And it is much nicer, I have to say, for building your uh, front end than writing ERB templates. The one pushback I'll give to that is the one issue that we have is we don't know what's going to happen in the future. So who's to say that Vue.js or React won't become the next backbone? That front-end JavaScript framework that we just kind of all forget about. And then now you have this ginormous application that you're having to manage this archaic architecture or framework. I understand that concern, but I tend to optimize for what makes things easiest now. And I'll worry about that later. But isn't that how you get technical debt? Sometimes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, if you were building an app five years ago with Backbone, then yeah, you know, you, you may have some technical debt, you know, wanting to upgrade it. But the flip side of it is at the time, you probably made a ton of progress. And unless you have a really solid reason for needing something like a Vue.js or a React or an Angular or going back to uh, server rendered stuff, I mean, why why even bother with upgrading it? You know, I do understand that some applications, they're not going to have the life. You know, you will probably outlive the life of your application. Probably. You know, hopefully. So, you know, I do understand it from that point. My point is, the closer you stick to Rails core, the longer you're going to be able to easily maintain your application. Yes, that, that is definitely worth considering. It's Boy, we've gone off on some good tangents here. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fun to try out the new stuff, though. I mean, that's what we're developers for, right? We want to try out the fun new things. Yeah. Um, you know, that's why we got into Ruby in 2006 and 2007. It wasn't, yep. you know, that was scary back then because nobody was using Ruby and everybody who was using, everybody was pointing at Ruby saying, that's too slow. I don't know. I, I feel like if I limited myself based on future technical debt or whatever, then... I'd never get anything done. I'll be too nervous yeah. all the time. Yeah, you're going to have to upgrade Rails as well for security patches and stuff like that. So I think technical debt is also, it's not a bad thing necessarily. I, it's, it's, it's borrowing from the future for now. So sometimes it actually pays. Sometimes it's just like, I need this thing right now. Um, especially when you're building a business and you need customers, you're willing to like take yeah. some debt out and pay it down later. There are two types of technical debt that I tend to see when we're doing this. And by the way, we've spoken about a ton of this at length on the Clean Coders podcast. But there's the technical debt that you incur because, oh, there's a new version of blah, 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 and you need to upgrade because security and standards and works in the modern browsers and what have you or whatever, right? And then there's the other kind of technical debt, which is we took some shortcuts on the way we built this, and now we've got to go make it more robust. We've got to go write tests. We've got to go do the other stuff that we should have been doing all along. That kind of technical debt is usually not worth incurring. Because what winds up happening is... is And, and this was a, something that came up in the conversation, I think, with Chris Powers. is He basically said that the technical debt is essentially the kind that slows you down as you're building your app. You know, So you get a certain ways into the app, you have enough now technical debt to where it's causing friction as you continue to build. And so you're paying the interest on it now. Yeah, I think I think the big thing with tech... So we could totally open a whole can of worms here too. Yeah. But like, I think the big <laughs> thing with technical debt, right, is don't... like It's the same thing with real life debt. Don't take on more than you can actually handle, right? Like you should go and make a calculation and and 
that's always a thing that you have to do, whatever kind of technical debt it is or whatever, right? Like, in my opinion, like the reason why people always cry about technical debt is because they didn't do that in the first place. They just shoved it all on the credit card and, and now they have massive debt. That's wise words for life, John. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna push this back toward people in Ruby though, because there are a ton of other folks. One person that you mentioned, Chris, at, at some point was... Uh, and I don't remember if it was leading into the show or during the show, but it was the Seattle RB folks. So you've got Ryan Davis, you've got Asia Hammerly, you've got Eric Hodel, Aaron Patterson's up there. Um, I know I'm forgetting people. Yeah, I mean, there was a period there where all the big gems seemed to come out of Seattle. Yeah. When I heard about how their meetup worked, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not from Seattle, so this might be not true, but it sounded like they were just spurring each other on. They would get together and just actually code together. Whereas the meetups I went to in London, where we get together and we talk about Ruby and we drink beer. Whereas it felt like it was more of learning from each other, spurring each other on, challenging each other. Yeah, and some of the stuff that came out of that was just absolutely incredible. Like, uh, I want to say Flog. Did Flog come out of there or, or Flay? You know, One of the, them uh, did. Yeah, like the Robocop precursor, which is kind of like an analyze your code to figure out the um, cyclomatic complexity. And it was just like, I didn't even know I had a problem with cyclomatic complexity. I didn't even realize it was a thing until <laughs> yeah. Flay came along and told me it. I, I, was, I was always just really inspired by by groups of people getting together and kind of just inspiring each other. There was a great talk at RubyConf this year about the, about the, about through history, about like the salons in France and about artists in Venice who were just like helping each other learn different things. And I feel like Seattle.rb was one of those situations where the stuff came out of that was just absolutely incredible. They even had a stylistic choice named after them. For, for not including parentheses after your method names or whatever, Seattle style or whatever. Yep. I, I didn't realize that because I... It's still called out in the Ruby guide or whatever, style guide. So you're talking about you would have without the arguments without parentheses. So you yeah, have let me... Different... I'll dig that up while we're chatting. Because I remember I was doing... I was reviewing somebody's code for a job application and I think they had method definitions without parentheses and that was a big black mark. Because <laughs> I was like... What? This is really hard to read. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure it's parentheses on method names being omitted is, is what's called Seattle style. Very interesting. Anyone else that we want to talk about? I mean, I'm trying to remember some of the folks who were involved in the community further back that most folks won't know so they can go look them up. Yeah, so I mean, somebody that, that I think about in this kind of the same breath as Ryan Bates is Jeffrey Grossenbach. yeah. Um, and peep code. Yeah, peep code. And he, he also did the Ruby on Rails podcast for a bit. Ryan Bates has like a lovely, soothing voice, whereas Jeffrey Grossenbach had a, a bit more staccato to his voice. But he did this great podcast. I listen to it every week. And he also had this, this company called Peep Code where he would have incredibly well-produced videos about programming topics. And that was like Dave, like you said about how you you would watch all of the Rails casts. Like any time a new peep code came, came came out, I would I would pay for it. It felt expensive at the time; it was like twenty bucks or something. But it was just like it was always so good, and there was nothing out there like that. And I would just download them on my computer and I'd watch them. And I learned I didn't just learn Ruby. Peep code was when I first learned about iOS development. It was from him as well, mm-hmm. and. 
I think Jeffrey, I think his company, he sold his company to like a big tutorial company. Plural site. Plural yep. site. Yep. All right. Okay. Yeah. But man, big code was, this made such a big difference to me learning programming. Yeah. Yeah. I remember Greg Pollock from there too. Yeah. He Greg Pollock. Rails for he, Zombies. That was yeah. a lot of fun. I think he's since moved on to View. Uh, he's doing View Mastery okay. now. And Greg, Greg's the one that got me into podcasting. So I'll just throw that out as well. They had a podcast called Rails Envy. Him and uh, Jason Cipher, who I believe has passed away at this point. I actually used to listen to the Ruby on Rails podcast or whatever for a long time. Yep. Yeah, they rebooted that with Brittany Martin. So I just haven't gotten back into it. I have nothing against anyone. I just, it was not on the web for like, I don't know, like a year at least or something. And it just kind of, yeah, it was a few years. So. I remember this, this is one um, Ruby on Rails podcast interview he did. Uh, I'm going to forget all the details, but it was essentially, I think the topic was camping, which is going back to why the lucky stiff. Camping is like a, <laughs> a mini framework. And he was talking to a, a developer. At that time, Twitter didn't exist. It was like a side project for, I can't remember the name of the company. And they were using camping to create avatars for Twitter. And Twitter back then was TWTTR. Remember, it was like a Rails app back then. And I remember hearing about this Twitter thing on the Ruby on Rails podcast thinking, what's the point of Twitter? This sounds like an absolute silly idea. They should stick to the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'm still I've trying gone. to find the point of Twitter. <laughs> um, Go have lunch with Jack Dorsey and ask him. What about? I, I went back to try and find that podcast because I felt like it's like it's such a, it's like a historical document now. And I can't find it anywhere where, where he's interviewing about like an early Twitter developer about using why the lucky stiffs code and making Twitter. I just remember that that whole Twitter argument about Ruby performance, Rails performance and being like, you're so full of crap. But <laughs> I've always been into DevOps. And so I have lots of opinions related to DevOps things. It's my, it's my thing. Dude, since we're doing throwbacks, I remember way, way back when... I did not know how to deploy a Ruby on Rails application. So I had a site on GoDaddy, some space on GoDaddy, and they had a Plesk panel, which you could get the Ruby fast CGI thing on there. And that's how, how I deployed my first Ruby on Rails application. It was so horrible. We did uh, my, first, my first job for two years, we ran PD on... Crap, I cannot remember the name of that Linux distro that like you have to pretty much build everything yourself or whatever. Anyway, it was, that was too? awful. No, not that one. It was like a super obscure one that started with an A. I'll look it up here Arc? or whatever. Alpine? Uh, hang on a second. No, it's not Arc, but like... <laughs> uh, anyway, I'll, I'll find it or whatever. But it's, I, it's not really even whatever... I just thought we were we were amazingly ahead of the times when everyone was using Mongrel and we like moved to Ubuntu and using Apache and like Passenger just came out and then we put like somewhere like I think maybe six months later we put Nginx in front of it and reverse proxied it and we just thought we were amazing. We were just like ahead of the times. Speaking of deployments and one of my other favorite people in the Ruby community and I don't think he's as actively you know, out there anymore is uh, Jameis Buck. Oh, big time. He created yeah. Capistrano, which is kind of what I'm remembering. But I mean, he's written like Mazes for Programmers. And he was another one of these people that would just go find an interesting area to explore and then just write a whole bunch of pointless code around it. 
So it was Arch Linux. Is Arch that what you Linux. meant when you said Arc? I've always pronounced it Arch, but... Potato, potato. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. That's Then we were talking about the same thing. Cool. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, I'm sure we forgot people. If we forgot you and you're offended, let me know and we'll bring you on the show and talk about it. But but yeah, let, let's go ahead and do some picks. And then, yeah, we'll see where we end up from there. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on, so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from The Food Fight Show, and we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of The Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Dave, do you want to start us off with picks? Yeah, this this pick's kind of messed up. But to be honest, for a while, I had some teeth problems, some gum problems. And it got to a point where a periodontist wanted to do surgery on them to restore some bone loss that I had. And if you don't know what that entails, I'll tell you, it's nasty. They literally <laughs> cut your gum open and then fold it up to do repairs. I'm like, I just, there's no way I can go through that. Like, I don't want to. So I went to a different periodontist and got a second opinion. And he said, Hey, look, I'm not going to do anything for you. I'm just going to do some measurements. And I want to see how you can do with your own oral hygiene in order to improve things. So he gave me this device. It's called a Sulca brush, S U L C A brush. And it promotes healthy gums and all that good stuff. It's kind of like flossing with a toothbrush, but it's more of a fine point toothbrush that allows you to get underneath your gums in between your teeth and stuff. So I went back a month later, actually just uh, last week, and he said that the change in my gum health has been incredible, that there is no need for surgery, that I just need to keep doing what I'm doing. And so I'm like thrilled about these things. Nice. John, do you have some picks for us? I have one this week and and I kind of already previewed it a little bit. This past week, I was trying to... I have this one side project that I'm working on that has like a surveys thing. I I used the Rapid Fire Gem. I don't know if you guys have ever used it or whatever, but I used the Rapid Fire Gem and I extended it. I wanted these sections. Like if you ever used Google Forms or whatever, they kind of have like sections to your surveys. You ask some questions, you go to the next page, more questions. I wanted something like that. Rapid Fire didn't have it. So I added these sections in. But then I wanted it to look nice on the screen. And I had decided that I was going to use Stimulus in this app. And so I, you know, I wanted to implement this using Stimulus. It, it took me like a half hour to implement this thing that like I've done this kind of level of work 
before using React and Vue and things. It would have taken me hours, possibly, depending on uh, things, maybe maybe up to like half a day. It just like it just like freaking worked in a half hour. I was just complete like stimulus is my recommendation because holy crap, did this thing do everything that I want? Like talk about like just sprinkling JavaScript on a page and having magic work with no no setup or anything. It was just awesome. Awesome. I'm going to throw in some picks. Mine are off of Amazon Prime Video. The first one is The Expanse. And it's a show that was started on sci-fi. It's based on the books by James S.A. Corey. The TV shows are extremely well done. And they stick relatively close to the books. And so I don't feel like... like some, Some shows that I've watched that are based on books, you go watch the show and it's like, okay, this sucks. And they deviated from the book in massive ways that make it worse. The Expanse is just... It's well done. It sticks relatively close to the book. There are a couple things... I was watching the first episode of the fourth season with my father-in-law and I'm, I was trying to explain to him some of the stuff that was going on. Yeah, I realized, you know, because I was like, oh, that didn't happen in the book. But then I realized that it cut out a whole bunch of political stuff that you would have had to understand and you essentially got to the same plot. And so, you know, the political stuff was fascinating in the book, but they needed to shorten it up for the TV show. So I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying that fourth season, which incidentally is based on the fourth book. So there you go. And then I finished The Man in the High Castle. So that's the other one that I was finishing up before I watched this one. And I'm, I've really enjoyed that one as well. So I'm going to pick that. I think that's pretty much all I've got this week. Chris, do you have some picks? Yeah, I've got... I'm a, I'm a fan... By the way, I'm a big fan of The Expanse as well. It gets my thumbs up. But I'm a fan of board games. And I've got one recently that I really... That is quite fun. If you like code names, if you're familiar with code names, there's oh a my game gosh, Wavelength. Yes. Well, the game the game I'm re- re- recommending is called Wavelength. It's kind of like code names, and how it works is you get a dial that is randomly spun, and it's got like it's got like one side would be an extreme and the other side would be an extreme, and so the extreme is the thing that changes. So it could be very funny on one side and very unfunny on the other side. And then you've got this dial that you, that you spin. And one person looks at the, they see where this, the spinner landed and tries to get the other, the other people to predict where the, the line landed on the scale. So for example, from between funny and unfunny, let's say it fell down on a little bit unfunny, your clue could be dad jokes. And then, so then they have to try and figure out where on the dial it is. It's a really fun, easy game to play with a lot of people as well, which is great if you've got a company. Wavelength. Awesome. I haven't played that one, but I'm kind of a board game nerd. I should do a board game pick every week because there are some really great ones out there. And yeah, Codenames is a lot of fun. And they have versions for a lot of the different franchises. So if you're into Harry Potter, they have a Harry Potter if that you you're into i think we have a marvel version i'm trying to remember but yeah just fun stuff so yeah i'll have to check this one out all right chris if people want to find you online where are you the chris o show so if you want to find me on twitter the chris o show or you can come to my website lexu.co.uk is the company i work for hit me up i might not respond but maybe i will nice all right well let's go ahead and wrap this one up max out everybody Take care. Talk to you later. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.